Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film fans. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. Our miniseries from stage to screen, all about film adaptations of Broadway musicals, comes to a close today when all shook up original cast member Mark Price joins me to break the rules and circle back to Fosse with his autobiographical drama, All That Jazz. All right, Mark Price is here to finish off our segment from stage to screen. We've had a lot of fun doing these episodes on film adaptations of Broadway musicals, and we're ending this in a very interesting spot. Um, you picked All That Jazz, which is not a straight adaptation of any particular Broadway musical, but it is about success and about one of the most interesting characters in musical theater, Bob Fosse. I I want to know why, why pick this and not uh, any of the other... Um, mainstream movie musicals that we've that we've Good seen question um when you reached out to me and asked me about this i immediately began to sweat because i generally don't like a lot of musicals um which is hilarious because most of my work has <laughs> been in musicals as an actor um i picked this for several reasons one uh because i think it is as close to perfection of a film as you can get um i think it was probably one of my earliest influences one of the earliest influences in theater was uh, seeing a the the touring production, a video of the touring production, which is available, of Pippin when I was in high school, and seeing how he uh, was able to use storytelling through movement in such a provocative and at times grotesque and at times sort of anti musical way was just like spellbinding to me. It was it was so riveting. It was it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And so I feel like I've always I I've had such a fascinating history with uh, the work of Bob Fosse. I mean, when I was in high school, I started going to Anne Ranking's uh, theater camp that she uh, funded and started, which at the time was called the Musical Theater Project of Tampa. So I started working with Anne Ranking when I was a teenager in high school, which was crazy. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So I, I, I feel like I, a lot of my youth was circling around this man's work. But when I think about like one of the most influential films of me as an artist, I would say all that jazz is right up there for sure. It just happens to be kind of like an anti-musical musical. Um, and, and in a way it almost uh, is like two musicals. You have the first part, which is about Joe Gideon's rise uh, uh, to, or, or his desire uh, to to consistently top himself, and then you have the the last act of the film, which is essentially a, a musical montage about dying, you know, in, in in different chapters. So the way he structured the film is absolute genius, and he also used so many groundbreaking uh, film techniques that were uh, really not utilized uh, at, at the time. And there's so much influence from French filmmakers to, of course, uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half. Um, so many influences that really uh, became a conglomerate of his point of view in telling this particular story. Um, I was fascinated with 
how this story came to be in the first place. I had heard two different stories. I, I, I think I actually read in one of Shirley MacLaine's uh, memoirs that she was the one who gave him the idea to turn uh, uh, his, his heart attack into a film. Um, and then I also read a, a New York Times article where he himself said he is he was reading a book at the time about a woman's husband who was dying of cancer, and he wanted to turn it into a film, but he didn't want to be the ultimate existential bummer. He wanted to find a much more palatable approach to the the theme of death and and the theme of mortality, and he felt like he was limited in just uh, through the, the, the point, of, point of view from the book. And he wanted to do what he did best, which is why he turned the main protagonist into himself, essentially. And what's so fascinating is that at the time, in the 1970s, this was such a radical departure from musicals uh, on film, particularly in, in the sense that most of the musical on films during the 70s and 80s uh, were largely focused on relationships, relationship from one, you know, one person to the other or from subject to object. Um, for example, hair, uh, even Saturday Night Fever, all of these things uh, were really relationship driven. And all that jazz, you have just the relationship to Joe Gideon and his inner monologue and particularly his relationship to the angel of death, uh, which I just find so fascinating, so fascinating. So I've always been drawn to this film, and I feel like it's one that really just stands the test of time. Even years, I haven't watched this film in years, and even watching it, I just feel like it's just, it's just a stroke of genius. That being said, there are themes that make you cringe, but how he, how he presents them is so masterful. And I think that's why the film has really stood the test of time. I mean, we can end the episode right now if we wanted to. That was great. <laughs> um, but, uh, there's something about Bob Fosse just as a character. Obviously, he's the director of this film. And like you said, it's basically about the heart attack that he experienced while he was simultaneously editing the film Lenny with Dustin Hoffman and staging the original production of Chicago. But just as a person in Broadway, he is so iconic at this point for like a many number of different reasons. Obviously, his choreography was absolutely innovative at the time. There's really no one else who choreographed shows like him. And the shows that he did just in general are have like so many of them have become iconic at this point, like Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Obviously, Chicago and Pippin all have their own, have cemented their own place in not only pop culture, but obviously musical theater history um, in general. And it's because of, and he was just so prolific in his work and really pushed himself and also obviously had, you know, great battles with drug use and his relationship to others. I've always, I've always enjoyed the, um, there's a Patton Oswalt joke where he talks about how his mother's doctor is just so freely giving her prescription medication. And he goes, if you, if you make it past 70 in this country, you're invited to a pill party that would bring Bob Fosse back to life and then kill him again. <laughs> <laughs> Which That's is brilliant. so perfect. And I had never seen this film before, before what? last night. Yes. Oh, I had, gosh. I had heard, I'd heard a lot about it came out in one of the great movie years in 1979. And obviously um, a lot of people will talk about Roy Scheider's performance and we will get into everything about that. But I didn't really have the, the opportunity to until, until just now it was one that 
I had heard somewhat about, but I it wasn't discussed as much as I feel like it should be. Um, there's, there's, you are definitely correct that there is a lot going on in terms of the filmmaking techniques that you wouldn't necessarily expect someone who is so used to theater to yeah. do. And definitely innovative. It's very much heavily influenced by the films of the 70s and showcases a lot about success and about Broadway and putting art together and you know doing something that's meaningful, but also he loses himself. And it's yeah. harrowing. It's harrowing to watch because this movie really changed what the musical did for that was set as the precedent for years beforehand about success and about Broadway, um, which I feel like we should talk about in terms of Broadway because of you know we've delved into it so many times throughout this series of how Broadway is such an icon of success because of so many people who want to be performers and want to um, or actors will flock there because it's it's the Great White Way. It is so known as to the place to go to become a name and like really become a star, you know, as, as they say, which sounds cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. And what do you, what do you think is the, why do you feel as though, because this movie is almost a, a cautionary tale and by almost, I mean, it is, it's, yeah. it's disturbing what happens in this movie. And yet, you know, we are still entranced by the success that people like Bob Fosse and the genius that he had. Um, what do you feel is so special about, theater and the success that comes with that, that people continually flock to and like try to achieve themselves. I think it's really uh, uh, summed up in the first line of the film, which is it's showtime, right? Uh, You have Mm -hmm. a character that is so uh, obviously wrestling with so many internal um, uh, complexities, for lack of a better word. And how he gets to fuel that into his work. I think that's part of the reason why his work was so dynamic. First of all, he was one of the last great uh, uh, director-choreographers who was a stylist. I think style is is practically dead in musical theater. Um, there's a lexicon of movement and vocabulary, but in terms of like stylists, you know, you can look at someone like Agnes DeMille or or Balanchine, or actually uh, 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 not balancing uh, Jerome Robbins, but even Jerome Robbins was such a, a chameleon. Um, no one really kind of touched uh, uh, Jerome Robbins, uh, but they're they're like Michael Kidd, uh, Michael Bennett. All of these, all of these uh, 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 people were incredible stylists. They had their own vocabulary of movement, and you also have someone like Bob Fosse who. The thing that is so brilliant about Roy Schneider's performance is that he is able to incorporate the charm that many people say that Bob Fosse had. And I think that's one of the things that made him so compelling. Everyone wanted to work with him. He was like the badass of the theater. And he really celebrated diversity, which is very different from today. You know, if you go and buy a ticket to Chicago, you're not going to see the same representation of what it was. It was a lot dirtier. It was a lot grittier back then. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was sort of like the definition of like uncool, and by and by that it became cool. Um, he was really interested in the psychology of, of the human being, less than making like flashy moves. And even the the representation of the dancers in Chicago, because I that was my first job when I graduated college. 
the dancers in Chicago, like he celebrated all different shapes and body types and ethnicities uh, when he was working. And now it's kind of homogenized. We've lost that uh, in, in a way. And I feel like the, the, the collective uprising that's happening today is going to hopefully, you know, redefine that uh, to an extent. But I think people are drawn to that magnetic personality. I always feel like a star, my, defini- my definition of a star is someone who can walk into a room and suck the oxygen right out of it without even really knowing it. And I feel like I don't know because I wasn't alive when, uh, well, I never got to meet him uh, 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 before he died. I was too young. Uh, but I feel like that's who, that's who Bob Fosse was. I feel like he was a star in his own right. Um, the reason why I was always drawn to his work is because he was someone who took all of his limitations and, and turned them into, uh, signature, uh, stylistic, uh, uh, cornerstones in his work. Everything from like, you know, being turned in, having a uh, horrible posture, um, having thinning hair, always wearing a bowler hat, you know, things like that. Those things, he was able to take whatever faults he had and highlight the the fuck out of them and make them sexy and appealing. And I think his, his way of like, and even how he produced shows and how he was able to talk producers into producing some of these ideas for shows, he always went through the back, the back door, or the side window. He never went in through the front door. And that is something that was hugely appealing to me uh, when I was sort of growing up as an artist. And it still is today. I've always been, uh, uh, you know, drawn to those people who have their own, uh, you know, is, is, you know, kind of off the fringe in, in, in a way. Um, so I feel like he was, uh, largely ahead of his time in a lot of respect. You know, even if you look at like, um, uh, you know, Chicago, when that came out, the interesting thing, if you look at the beginning of all that jazz, the opening sequence with the cattle call, uh, that kind of it's it kind of echoes uh, a chorus line, which opened the same year of Chicago. But what he did that was so badass, he was like, "I'm not going to make it about the dancers. I'm going about I'm, I'm going to make it about the dude who everyone wants their attention. He's like the guy who can go in and just make or crush anyone's dream." And so the point of view isn't so much on the dancers; it's about his process of choosing the dancers, which I thought was so fascinating. So fascinating. So in a way, I felt like a slight fuck you to Michael Bennett <laughs> in, <laughs> in some respect, because Michael, of course, Chorus Line, which is a, probably one of the most master, masterful shows there is, um, that uh, show you know, won all the awards over Chicago. Um, and again, I feel like it's because Chicago was ahead of its time. Um, you know, It's one of the longest running shows in history right now. So fascinating. I think people are just drawn to showbiz. I think he personified it. He personified all the excesses of showbiz, which is very appealing to people. And he de- he sort of uh, embodied uh, the imperfections of showbiz and being able to turn it into something else. And I think that's what was so appealing for a lot of people. Yeah, he definitely didn't have the necessary look of someone who like of, of perfection. Like you could definitely tell, like, like we talked about, he, he slouched a lot. He was like, um, he almost looked sickly. He, uh, was balding all the time, but he, there was something going on in his head that like no one else could replicate. He had the charisma of, of a star. Your definition of a star was, was beautiful by the way, because like that definitely feels like if you saw Bob Fosse, 
like it's it definitely seemed like everything like was uh, like everything was done it's like your whole all attention is on him and yeah. the way that he would choreograph shows and, and it's done beautifully in the film is so interesting because it almost seems like he has like and especially in like the original uh like the touring version of pippin that you said it almost seems like every single person has something to do and they're in their own world but it also is coming together of this larger piece of choreography to make it I don't even know how to describe it. Like how it's it's all individual, but it's also connected together. It's yeah, so odd. He, like well, he was uh, he was a perfectionist. That was his great tragic flaw. Um, mm-hmm. The the thing that he was so good at ultimately killed him. Um, and I think you know you talk to anyone who worked with him. Uh, I think in the end they will say, yeah, he could be a son of a bitch, but he could get the best performance out of you that, that, you know, you, uh, never thought was possible. And I think all great directors can do that. Of course, nowadays they can do that without the psychological, uh, you know, um, uh, (laughs) games that, that were prevalent in the seventies. Um, but I think, uh, everyone wanted to work with those people who could, who could get something out of them that they never knew was possible. And also, I think I think he was, I think he was really a director without even really acknowledging it himself. That's why it was so amazing to see all the validation of the film when he did it, um, uh, especially after after Lenny. Um, but you know, with 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 all that jazz, you know, some of his best friends were playwrights. You know, so he always had this uh, this deep connection to the psychology of the human being. And I know that even. Even learning some of his his material, some of his repertoire, every single movement had a purpose, had an intention behind it. There wasn't one thing that was left for the sake of movement. Everything had something behind it. And I think that's why everyone wanted to work with him because it was such a detail-oriented process that as an artist, it's a uh, never-ending process of evolution. And I think who doesn't want to uh, have that kind of process? Absolutely. And he definitely seemed like he was one that would just walk into a scene and obviously like really deeply think about every single choice that he was making and knew what he was talking about in regard to really any medium, whether it was or any job, it was whether choreography or directing or acting. Because what's wonderful about him as a person that's is honestly inspiring is that he obviously worked a lot in both theater and film all like all of his major films Lenny um all that jazz and Cabaret have been widely celebrated Cabaret he won the Academy Award for for best director um, right. and Lenny Bruce that's Dennis Dustin Hoffman his performance is so well hailed and obviously this movie um just someone who is able to um showcase their abilities in several different ways in you know obviously through dance um and through theater and film is really exciting to see the creative energy that this guy brought is just off the charts and something that you could tell that not only, I mean, he was very clearly disturbed by the perfectionist nature that he would come to, um, to his work with, but he cared about what he was doing. Like he really made sure to put the effort in to make something meaningful. And you could see it in the film too, that he, I mean, Roy Scheider's character is so desperately trying to fight through everything to get this show and this film finished. And while it's disturbing, it's also 
in some very strange way admirable and inspiring, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, I'm thinking about the scene, uh, uh, the, the layback Victoria scene, where he's in the studio and he's he's telling her he's just like just relentless with her until she's just whittled down to nothing, and that is the moment where her artistry can come through. And you know, you can look at that at several diff- uh, in, in several different ways. It's manipulative. There's a little bit of patriarchy going on. It is old school psychology of a rehearsal room. But in the same respect, uh, you know, that character is able to tap into something that was uh, that she never knew was possible. And also, an interesting tidbit is that that the 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 dancer that that is based on was actually in. Uh, the film. I can't remember what what uh, what part she's in the film, but he actually put her in the film. Uh, oh wow! Which is fascinating. I can't remember which uh, which one she is, but um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's there's mm-hmm. such complexity to his artistry and his uh, his himself as a person as well. I mean, it's, it's it really is like Pandora's box. I think you could really unpack so many things about the man himself, uh, you know, besides the work itself, you know, him as a person is just endlessly fascinating. Um, and, and it has both light and dark. There's a lot of dark, but I think, you know, everyone that I talked to that worked with him says that there was a lot of light too, that that dude was a real charmer. He knew, he mm-hmm. knew how to make you feel seen and validated and, uh, he could really raise, raise the energy of a room. To shift gears a little bit, we obviously um, you you mentioned that you have worked primarily in theater, um, and you have a great relationship to the stage. I was curious what your relationship to the film medium is like. How do you consider yourself a movie person as well? Is it um, not the same attachment? Like, what is your relationship to the film? Yeah, my relationship to the film is uh, is or my relationship to film in general is the same relationship that I have to storytelling. I think it is an endlessly fascinating medium. And as I grow older as an artist, it's one that I'm more drawn to, uh, to be quite honest, uh, because I think there's some exciting things happening. And it's nice to see, uh, it's fascinating to see the crossover that's starting to happen between film and theater. Some of the influences. uh, uh, Even, you know, something that's really fascinating is that film, itself has heavily influenced acting styles in, in, in musicals and in theater in general nowadays. I mean, of course, when, with plays, there's, there's always going to be a, a natural, uh, naturalistic tendency. But with musicals, I feel like film has made a huge uh, uh, impact on the style of acting. So even if you have these period pieces with these broad uh, uh, archetypes of characters, they still are rooted in this naturalism that's fascinating. I'm thinking of uh, just, just an example of the last, the last revival of Gypsy, Electra. You know, it, normally like that character is like so blazing and broad and she just played the whole thing like she had been electrocuted one too many times. It was such a mm-hmm. subtle performance that was like one of the most brilliant performances in the entire show. And then you look at a show like Once, the musical of, of Once on Broadway, that I felt like I was watching something so intensely private. It, it felt cinematic in nature. And I think that was partly because of the sound design, but I think it's also heavily influenced by this sense of naturalism. I think 
partly because of film, but also because of reality television as well. I think that's the 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 one positive influence uh, that it's had is to make people uh, appear to be more real in certain sense. So my my mm-hmm. fascination with film, I've always been drawn to film. Uh, I was a film nerd growing up. I mean, you know, like I I watched all the greats and um, it was just endlessly. That was my portal into another universe uh, growing up in in Houston, Texas. And I would say the two films. Uh, the the two films that probably made me move to New York was this film, All That Jazz, and also Fame. Uh, watching these two films, I was like, "Done." As soon as I can get out of here, I'm out of here. I'm going. I'm moving mm-hmm. to New York. So, yeah, it's so enticing, and I I'm glad you brought up Once. That's a that is a great example. I mean, that movie is just so because of how homemade it is, it definitely feels much more personal. And that's the wh- whole reason that we did this series is to talk about how there's so much of an unnecessary gap or distance I feel between the film and theater medium in terms of um, their perception, where there have been a multitude of examples of where they have crossed over many that we've talked on in the series, but also like um, this movie, I feel like paved the way for a lot of examples like, like Birdman. Yes. Like, um, or even like something a little different, like whiplash or obviously the Chicago film and, um, hundred percent and yeah and and even fame like you can definitely tell that there's something and it has to the thing is is it has to be done right there and it's and it's tricky you know theater there's a lot there's definitely some differences between the two there's a lot that has to be transferred over but it's all about the energy like i feel if like just in terms of the scale of theater if you can boil it down to get the essential energy that a scene can bring from the theater on film then I think you have succeeded. And this movie is such a great example. The way that, and this also has to do with the amazing editing um, by Alan Heim, who uh, was an from- absolute genius. Yes. That yes. dude was a fucking Jedi. He was so <laughs> ahead of his time. He, he, it's unreal. Some of the things that they were doing in that film were so ahead of their time, so heavily influenced by, by French cinema. Uh, these jump cuts, all, all of these these sort of non sequitur shots that that would like pop out of nowhere, that paved the way for like music videos. You yes. know, um, it was just it was so groundbreaking. It was so groundbreaking, and now I feel like I I feel like the intersection between theater and film is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. You know, like mm-hmm. there's there's so much crossover now. And I think if you look at it, you know, like Bob Fosse, no doubt, was a genius. He, he, I think, you know, again, I never worked with him. I heard he was a madman at times. I heard he was really charming. But there's no mistake that the, the dude, the dude was touched. He he had genius in him, and like many geniuses, a lot of their their best work is always ahead of their time. You've seen that from the works of Sondheim to. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Bob Fosse to all of these people who have written shows that, you know, for whatever reason, don't some of those piece, pieces don't come into uh, their their prime until years later. What was interesting watching this movie for the first time is I wasn't I didn't really know what to expect going in going into it. You could tell that. 
the way that he filmed all of the choreography scenes were had um, certain editing techniques in mind, and the uh, just the the focus on all the characters as they're doing their movements, and the whole sequence where with him and uh, Evangelique in uh, yeah his discussions with the Angel of Death, played by Jessica Lang, and the just the disturbed nature of his character. I wasn't, I, di- I just didn't know what to expect going into it. And it was so fun to discover that. Oh, I think that's probably the best way to go into that film is not knowing what to expect. Um, Cause there are so many surprises within that, that film. I think that's probably the best way to experience it. And there's a lot that we need to talk about. So why don't we just go straight into the critical breakdown? Perfect. I feel like we should just get this out of the way now and just talk about Roy Scheider's performance because I mean, oh my god, he oh is, my god. There's like there's something about him that I I he's so likable in Jaws, and it's such a completely different character. Like he's a very loving father and um, kind of the more like everyday man, and here he's the almost the total opposite of how just clearly disturbed he is and restless but you're still fascinated with what he's doing yeah it's it's fascinating i think that was probably one of the smartest things that flossy did was cast him in that film because you're exactly right Roy schneider is just so endearing by nature just by by who he is on on film and it really is a testament to uh roy schneider's performance and also the casting and also the direction but I think Roy never stopped studying him on set while they were filming. He studied him like a friggin' hawk. If you look at the, the, the DVD has some bonus features. You can like watch, there's some shots of him just like watching Fosse and just, he, would, he never dropped character in, in the sense that he had his character literally directing him. So what a treat that must have been as an actor to have that to have the embodiment of that character standing in front of you. Now, the interesting thing is that I read an article in the Times last night, years ago, how Fosse uh, said he never wanted to admit that that was him, that that uh, that that character was based on him, because people Mm -hmm. would label him as being just like grotesquely, uh, uh, you know, egomaniac. Um, But he only could tell uh, a story that he knew which is why he made that character, Joe Gideon, a director and choreographer. Um, I mean, like everything down for, I know Roy Schneider is not a dancer. I know he's not, <laughs> he's not but he, how he even carried himself uh, just really, really embodied uh, the, you know, just the physicality of Fosse and embodied what Fosse was as a, as a choreographer as well. I just think it's a testament because even Roy Schneider playing, you know, you know, egocentric director choreographer who is a megalomaniac and wanting to cheat death, his natural charm comes through. And I think that is one of the smartest things. If Fozzie would have made a serious film about trying to, to deny your own mortality, um, it just would have been a huge bomb. And I think that's one of the smartest things that he did was infuse that film with, with so much humor and lightness and wit 
And I think uh, that came through particularly in Rob Schneider's performance. It's an interesting film because there are a lot of different uh, things going on. I mean, it's obviously a revisionist history of a lot of the past musicals, like movie musicals. It's about success. It's also almost an addiction movie, but it's told through show business. It is an addiction movie. It's 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also got elements of a classical musical in in and of itself. And obviously it's a drama, but it also is very funny at points and very bright, but this uh, the underbelly of it is a very dark and uh, dramatic movie. And he takes the takes those leaps of like, especially in the scene when like towards you said the second half when he's battling the actual like heart attack, when he is like going through that four month process of just being in bed and he's jumping up and down and um uh, talking with everyone in the room and uh, feeling yeah. up the nurses and having sex with someone in bed when someone comes in and still smoking. Yeah. It's such a weird montage. You would never expected someone to take those leaps and bring such lightness and like unease to a, a, a topic like that, but it works. It does work. And in a way, it's really flirting with the grotesque in, 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 those, in those scenes. You know, it's such an anti-musical element. I think one of the most disturbing, uh, two of the most disturbing things in the film is uh, when he has to say goodbye to his daughter in the finale in the oh, audience. God. And also, the most shocking thing in the entire film is actually in the credits. Uh, you know, he does, he does the, the final sequence. He meets the slow pan at the end, which is just genius. The lighting yes. for that is just fucking phenomenal because you don't <laughs> see her face in, in full light until he gets right close up to her. And then we see the shot. It jumps to the shot of the body being zipped up in the bag. You hear Ethel Merman saying there's no business like show business, which ends before the credits are done. And then it's pure silence. And in that, and in that moment, you get a sense of how, how terrifying you get. You get the essence of his his base root fear. That character of Joe Diddy, Joe Gideon, and I would say probably for Bob Fosse himself, that if he never had uh, something to invent, that that would mean that he was nothing. And that was the thing that that drove his work to the perfectionist tendencies that it did. And that's why the film is so genius. And the fact that he was able to comment on that tiny detail, letting the song play to the end, and then letting the film sit in complete silence as the credits continue to roll is just devastating. It's devastating. And it's such a tiny, tiny moment. It's really great the way he starts and the way he ends the film because, like we said, the ending has such a disturbing element with this big musical number and, yes, saying goodbye to his family and then just, yeah, hard cut to the body bag being zipped up. And But the beginning, like you said, is a total, like, fuck you to a chorus line, but it does it so well, like, with all the jump cuts and... Oh, my God. Um, Again, just, like, the dude is such a badass. He's like, okay, yes. I, I see your opening number of a chorus line, and I'm going to raise you with this <laughs> opening for this film that's yeah. not even a, a musical. And I'm going to, yes. like, I'm going to turn it on its head. But what's really cool is that you also get to see his relationship with 
like everyone else, like every other role player that's going to be in that movie. You see so many aspects of his life. Like he goes and talks to the producers and like about who he wants. And there are some girls who gets let go. They're like, um, you know, he, he didn't pick us. He never picks us. And then he talks yeah. to his daughter and his ex-wife. And then right. we meet Kate. And then he goes to edit the film. It's so fast moving that whole like first 10 minutes or so that it is, it's such a great intro to the hectic world of Broadway and of show business. And it almost like he sets it up to be somewhat enticing, but also you know that it feels it feels tiring. Like you just feel he, everything that Roy Scheider does, especially. You know, the fact that he has the same routine over and over again in the morning and saying it's showtime, folks. Yeah. Like, it's, you feel so exhausted for him. Yeah, you really do. He conveys that sense of fatigue, of like deep bone marrow fatigue so well and in such an indirect way without beating us over the head with it that he, he, he successfully creates that feeling of discomfort. Yeah. And you, and just watching him, like, and also, I mean, this is uh, obviously a product of the time, but just seeing him in every single scene, almost every single shot with like half a cigarette hanging out of his mouth yeah. and just the sickly look, you can just, it just feels like you feel yourself getting sick as you're watching. And obviously that's a, a purposeful choice. Um, yeah. But you're just watching and you're like, oh my God, the, the number of cigarettes that he's smoking in and of itself is just like devastating. Oh and God, yeah. Once the movie turns like after he's dancing with his daughter in the studio and he starts coughing for the first time and has the jump cuts of like his memory and yeah. forward with the heart surgery. Yeah. That's when I feel the movie like really turns because yep. you, you're just like, Oh my God, there's definitely something else going on here as opposed to it just being about we're putting on this fake version of Chicago. It's such, it's so, uh, and again, I think this is a testament to the editing as well as his direction but the editing is so brilliantly done and how the movie is paced really i mean like he gets you from the the very first moment of of hearing you know on broadway and seeing all of those dancers and seeing how enticing it is and you you totally buy it hook line and sinker and just like you said the discomfort is so smartly paced throughout the film that by the time you start seeing him cough and everything you're right. It takes on a totally different turn. And then it's just like the film takes on a whole nother dimension. And it's really cool to kind of focus on what you think the movie's going to be about, you know, about Broadway and putting on a show. I love the scenes when he is working with the dancers and trying to put on the musical numbers of this, of, of this show, because it's very clear that the material that he's working with and staging is so provocative and, not something that you would expect from Broadway at the time. Like the fact that like after they do that whole scene with the, um, like with the erotic dancing and the yeah. one guy's like, well, we just lost the family audience. Like you could tell that what he was doing was so unheard of for Broadway and what they were expecting at the time. And that kind of shows in Fosse's work at times, I feel, because like even with something like Pippin, which has a very, you know, childish friendly idea and story about it also has an orgy scene so it's it's so strange and but yeah. it, like it makes like it fits it fits well in terms of the overall story and it's great to see that dancing is wonderful and yeah. uh, just it's so energetic like even though it's a long musical number the way yeah. that they are able to pace it is fantastic 
Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's remarkable. It really is. It's. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's still. Uh, stands the test of time, that film. Let's talk about some of the other performances um, because there are... Uh, there. I, I love the relationship that he has between... Um, it's him, Kate, his daughter, Michelle, um, yeah. and his ex-wife, um, Audrey, who yeah. all play like very different roles. And I, I, it's cool to see them kind of evolve and show their relationship more and more because like even we get like one scene with Kate before Michelle's like... Um. Oh, why don't you marry Kate? You know, then you'll stop screwing around. Like even she's like aware that he's kind of like, yeah. you know, like he cheated on his cheated on his wife, and now is with this other girl, and even has close, uh, you know, speaking relationships with with his ex wife. And that scene where she's dancing and they're talking about like the girl from Philadelphia is like so cool to see the power dynamic that plays out between the two of them. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's such an interesting dynamic. I think the mutual respect that those women had um, uh, for each other, you know, we're talking about Anne Ranking and, and uh, Gwen Burden, the the mutual respect they had for each other as artists and their their shared love for uh, for Fosse um, as 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 a man, as a human uh, is just it's it's endlessly fascinating. It really is. Um yeah, I cannot imagine having to audition to play the girlfriend of a director in the film that is based on you and your <laughs> your real uh, relationship with the director. Yes, um, I, I can't even I can't even imagine that. And it's interesting because the series, uh, uh, the Fosse Verdon series uh, that was on Fox uh, uh, last year, which was mm-hmm. um, uh, really interesting. Uh, there was a lot of it that I felt worked brilliantly and a lot of it that did not at all. Um, but uh, uh, I loved that they showed that that scene of making her audition and him getting the performance out of her that, 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 that he did. Um, it's, it's just fascinating. It really is. Well, that's kind of the thing about this movie is it because of the personal nature and the obvious um, autobiographical um, lens that he's telling this story through, it does there. It that brings a whole other level to it, not just for the actors in terms of how intimidating and how much of a weight that is, but for yeah. you, the um, you know, the audience member, you're just thinking like this is, this is literally this feels like someone's life. It's like obviously the movie is very filled with the ego of Bob Fosse, um, but you it feels it feels honest. It, it feels like this is how I was feeling at the time. And this is what I think my, how my life was going through those, like, you know, like for that year, however long this movie is supposed to span. And he does it in such a way that you, it's so enticing and that you can get sucked into the story so easily. Well, he really presents, uh, uh, the, the, his, this character's failures. He turns it into such such an experience that everyone can relate to and, and really sort of mirrors back that, that striving for perfection for any artist and, and in all areas of life, you know, his, you see those moments when it is breaking his heart that he's choosing his work over his daughter or his work over his girlfriend. Um, You see, it's so clear. It's so clear. So he's, he's able to, to show 
uh, the humanity of, of what he's trying to do, of to strive for greatness, to make something that no one has ever made before, and how that can just, how that ultimately always falls back into nothingness. And I think that's, that's the other reason why the film has uh, stood the test of time. There's a brilliant book called Denial of Death, uh, uh, Denial of Death uh, by, um, uh, I think it's uh, Ernest Becker. It won the Nobel uh, Prize. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1973, but it basically uh, speaks to this idea that that is essentially what all of us are doing because we are animalistic by nature, that we are constantly trying to deny our own mortality. At some point, it kicks in. And however we in- employ that, whether that's through our family, whether that's through our work, whether that's through, that's through our creative pursuits, we are constantly trying to strive to create something that stands the test of time. And I think that's what he did uh, with this, this archetype of, of Joe Gideon and how he was able to show that on so many different facets from his personal life to his life of, of being a parent, of being an artist. All of that bled through to, to tell the same story. And ultimately, we see his demise that no matter what he created, it, it doesn't matter because it all falls back into nothingness. We all get zipped up to, uh, into a body bag, metaphorically, metaphorically speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, was, there's a great quote. That I think the quote that really um, kind of sums it up um, is when uh, I think the actor who plays the stand-up in the movie that he's making says to him, you know, it's a you have a deep-rooted fear of being conventional, which is an interesting thing that's going on there because at, at that point, it's towards the end of the second act. And our, right now, his even his work is like pestering him and, you know, antagonizing him. But also, it's speaking truthfully that you could definitely tell that he wanted to make something larger than life. And that comes out of fear, this fear of just being completely average and, you know, almost, you know, by the book. And... I feel like as an artist, personally, you know, as a filmmaker, that's something that I definitely, um, you know, strive for is being, you know, as standing out with the work that you make. And it's so difficult. And you can tell that he is so just worn down, but addicted to it that like, even when he's in the, uh, in, in the hospital, or in the doctor's office after he, you know, first goes and he's like, I have a show to put on. I, I'll be fine. And then like starts to go. And then he's finally is falling back onto the bed. And he's like, you guys put me here. You did this. Like, isn't actually able to accept the fact that his work is what is literally killing him, even though it's the thing that should be keeping him alive. Like there's so much great dramatic irony in that. There is. And I think what he does incredibly well is he just shows, he shows the complexity um, there's a lot of light and there's a lot of dark in that dude. And I think Fosse himself was uh, obviously a, a, a deeply conflicted uh, human being. Um, a lot of it has to do with his past and his upbringing, but also his life in, in show business and feeling like an outsider his entire life. There's a brilliant quote from this, uh, this article from the New York Times where he said uh, in relation to um, you know, the, the complexity of this character of Joe Giddy in the film. He says, sometimes all that razzle-dazzle doesn't mean very much. There's a Scandinavian streak in me that sees it pretty dark sometimes, but I don't know what else to do. There's no other game in town. Just fascinating 
that, yeah. you know, it could have been construction. It could have been, you know, a chef. It could have been anything. But the fact that it's showbiz, he was able to, to play out all of these uh, complexities of the human condition uh, to, to great detail. That was, that was his work. That was, that was the one thing that he, that he knew how to do. And it's interesting, especially in this film, how it comes together as such, because it frames it as this big and flashy tale of an artist, but it comes all, how it comes together like so perfectly in the end, because there's a lot of setup in this movie and not wasted setup. It's not, it's not overused, but there a lot of things need to be set up in place for the ending to work as well as it does, because I agree, you know, in, in the, in the beginning you have to, you have to show, um, what he's working on. You have to show how he's working on it. You have to build the relationships between, you know, obviously his daughter and his wife and his girlfriend, but you also have this whole section of, um, where he's in this almost like rundown theater that looks like an attic talking to Jessica Lang that at first when I was watching it, like when that first, when it first started to do it, I wasn't really sure what he was going for. Like I wasn't, I, I was honestly a little confused. Like I, I could tell that it was like a way for him to like his escape from the stress and the um, exhaustion of work. But I wasn't sure who he was talking. I wasn't sure necessarily immediately what was going on. But the way that how they get him in into the hospital and all the musical numbers start to work up, then you realize, oh wait, he's actually having like a bittersweet, like sentimental discussion with death, and it's almost beautiful in this mother-son relationship almost. It it's, is. The it fact is, that he, he framed it in, in very much that, it was the mother-son, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, the element of sexual desire, but also the, the mothering aspect as well. Um, and the fact that his death is, uh, is so revealing about his character and his motives. Yeah. And there's so many things that we can say about the ending. I, I just think it's one of the best like endings I've seen in a movie recently because of it's so fucking good. It's just because just, of how how much is under the surface and it, it it how like how the dots are connected in your head and it's not overt necessarily. Like you have to realize how important everything is. Like obviously uh him walking through the grounds of the hospital um, and, you know, not accepting the fact that he is most likely going to die and going through the seven stages, which is obviously referenced heavily. Yeah. Um, just seeing him walk around and like kick the water uh, in like the, the boiler room of the hospital before banging his head uh, and like spreading blood on the walls, like in the, um, in the staircase is such an interest, like it's a disturbing downfall. Uh, yeah, it's so fascinating too because it, you see, you see that struggle even when he is about to meet the angel of death. That slow pan where he goes down that hallway. By the time he gets face to face with her, he is covered in sweat. But at the yes. same time, it is he is. He is so enthralled by her. And uh, like, if you want to talk the essence of 
of uh, Roy Schneider's performance, it's in that one shot right there. Mm -hmm. That is the heart of his performance right there. He's just covered in sweat. He's terrified, but he's enthralled. It's the one thing he wants more than anything um, uh, is release from that. And the fact that he doesn't show what happens after that moment is so brilliant. It's so brilliant. It's almost like that. It's it's too precious of a moment to even uh, share with the audience. Uh, 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 from that point on, it just goes to the to the cut of the body being zipped up in the bag, which is absolute genius. It almost it almost reminded me of like just how everyone kind of awakes from a dream in some ways. Because I feel like in some dreams, obviously, if you like, if you remember them, but like you'll just get to the point where you're starting to be coherent in a dream and then something big is about to happen and then you just wake up and you're back in reality. So yeah. it, it's 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 perfect that he did that. And yes, that slowly creep in on his face. And I, at that point, I had realized this is the end and then it went to the next, um, to the shot of him in the bag. And I was, I like jumped a little bit. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it. Um, and it was, it's such a great, yeah, it's such a great culmination of everything that he was talking about. And the other thing that I love is, I mean, obviously it's great to see um, Ben Vereen in the, in the final scene, but yeah. um, the, what he says, like before uh, he comes on to do the song, he says like, um, he, uh, he was everybody's friend, but nobody loved him. Yeah. And, and then brings him on and they do like, you know, this big flashy, like, Finally, he's accepted, you know, my life, my life is over. And it's, it makes it because again, by showing the end in possibly the most positive scene in the movie, almost like it's so bright and everyone's smiling and everyone's happy because that song is such a banger. Um, and it's, <laughs> but like, you know, that he's dying in that moment is so like conflicting like i love that I, I i love that choice and obviously the choreography and just the singing and the, like just everything about the way he staged that scene is perfect yeah it's so good it's so amazing like from from the time you get to that that whole hospital sequence the dream sequence it's like a freight train in, until the very end mm -hmm. um it's it's just genius yeah and before we move to the analysis section, the other thing I wanted to mention is how um, the other thing that's brought up is how everyone else around him almost turns on him in, in some way, shape, or form. Like when he's having the hallucinations, um, the it's kind of interesting how Michelle uh, and uh, his girlfriend and his wife are uh, are almost egging him on, and his and he himself is egging him on. Like, come on, you didn't say your line. Well, we'll just cut it, you know, and then goes yeah. back up to start shooting the scene again. Yeah. And the way that even the production, like John Lithgow's character, comes in and is like, oh, like he's trying to like take over at some points because he gives him notes. And yeah. the the idea that if he dies like now, the production will get back more than more yes. money than what they put back. Like oh, that, they don't, they don't morbid. even care about him. Yeah. It's completely morbid. It's just, it's grotesque. It really is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like it I just mean, all comes back to money. Always. I mean, and, and, and that's, <clears throat> that's what's so brilliant is that he just so unapologetically shows that, um, He's just, he's relentless with the human condition and what it means to be uh, a, a self-serving artist. Um, 
just relentless. And I think that's probably the greatest contribution to the film. And it's done through the lens of, of humanity. There's still charm. There's still warmth. The scene when, uh, you know, his girlfriend and his daughter perform the song for him and he's moved to tears just is like one of the anchors in the film, I think, uh, for the entire film. Because it, in that moment, you see that, yes, this is a guy who's relentless, but it's a man who, who cares so deeply, so deeply. He definitely does love them. And you can see that. Yeah. Um, through through every scene, especially with his daughter, um, it, which is one of the best child performances I've seen. Honestly, she is incredible. Um, Can in I tell movie. you? I well, the the same when I started started going to Anne Rankin's dance camp, she was one of the guest teachers the first year or two. Elizabeth Foldy, and she's one of the most magical human beings. She's exactly as you would think she would be as an adult. Um, she was just so warm, so grounded, so loving, non-show busy, you know, at all, not a trace of show busy in, in her body. Um, uh, uh, and she was just, she was so lovely. She was so lovely. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, uh, the casting of that is just, is brilliant. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah. She's just such a, she's so bright and, uh, <laughs> very you know very precocious and talented but just how she talks to her dad as if he was like you know just a regular person she's very honest with him especially yeah, in that was, scene when when she's just dancing with him and like he's like ah come on i'll catch you and he's yeah. still asking she's still asking her about uh about his relationships it's it's such a great relationship yeah it is and and the fact that she was smarter than both of them <laughs> yes is genius <laughs> just genius Yes, absolutely. Um, how about we move to the final section, analyze this? Perfect. So I mentioned in the beginning that this is kind of a revisionist history on a lot of uh, the popular musicals of the time. Past musicals, the musical was such a family-friendly, positive-oriented genre about not only just success, but about glamour and just, it was all positive. Like it was very happy. Like the songs were, it was, it was also like rooted in like romantic um, stories, like, like romantic comedies almost. Yeah. And they were meant to bring in families and people who enjoyed, you know, just those kind of musical numbers and, you know, success always triumphed more or less. So, and that was, that was kind of the idea of most musicals at the time. And then once the 70s came around, they started to change a little bit. Like we talked about the Fiddler on the Roof movie and how that the ending of that is so different than yeah. uh, so many other musicals because of yes. how devastating that is. And not only does, does the same can be said for this movie, but this movie does away completely with the notion of success. It, it like he dies because of what he was doing and his art and success and do you think that obviously you know this is more so about Fossey's life do you think but do you think that he was saying like he was warning people about success or was he just saying this is how I personally felt or do you feel like he was trying to warn people off I think that's probably how he felt at the time um, and I also think it's something he had such a love-hate relationship to showbiz in general and I think you saw a lot of uh, what he felt about showbiz in, in that point of view. Um, you know, it's just like that quote, uh, it was the only game who knew in town. 
to do what he does uh, to really play out a lot of those complexities. And I think ultimately, I mean, like he, he predicted his own death, um, you know, years later, I think it was eight years later, we would, we, you know, fall over with a heart attack, you mm-hmm. know, after, after a preview of Sweet Charity. So I think he uh, was well aware of the beast that he was working with. And I think he, just like Joe Gideon, wanted to push the boundaries as far as he could because he knew that he only had one shot to tell this particular story, that this was going to be preserved forever, that there was no, there's no second chances in telling this particular story. So I think in a way that's what makes this film kind of heroic is that he was so unflinchingly honest in his point of view about so many things. Uh, women, uh, showbiz, uh, directing, uh, what it means to be a human being. He was unflinching in that. And I think it's kind of both. I think it's what he felt. And I think it's also a cautionary tale because I think he did have that love-hate relationship. You know, especially if you look mm-hmm. at his, his family history, his father, you know, uh, had had roots in vaudeville. And uh, I think he had a love-hate relationship with his uh, childhood growing up and, and seeking that. And, you know, him growing up as a dancer, he never fit in. He never fit in. He wasn't handsome enough. He wasn't uh, uh, dashing enough. He wasn't anything enough. And I think that's ultimately what led to his genius is the, the minute he decided to embrace that and work with that. And I think it's the thing that also was the hardest thing for him as well. I think if there was something that he would be uh, more successful at doing, that he would he he would have done it. But like he said, I think he honestly did feel it was the only game in town. And if he didn't make something of himself, that would mean that he was nothing. And I think ultimately that's the thing that terrified him. And I think that that is that is his point of view. That if you're not careful, it will kill you. Yeah, and he. And I'm almost, I almost feel bad saying this, but at the end of this movie, it just, I was still inspired to continue with my work. And obviously, like you're supposed to, you know, ease forward with caution about, you know, success and, but also understand the one thing, kind of putting it in a more positive light, obviously, that the, the dangers and the addictive nature of success, like how yeah. just prolific he was in his work. But when I finished, when I was finished with this movie, another thing I was thinking of was that, I want to also be able to continue with my work and be able to make movies, but understand that it's it's also important to be able to you know strive for for greatness and and work what you got, but you have to be careful about it. I think you if to, you yes, if you have that DNA, you will never ever be exercised from that. You will always have creative DNA in you. And even if you decided to hang it up and open a taco stand on the side of the freeway, that creativity would seep out somehow. Um, Yeah, I I think that you're exactly right. I mean, it's still, that is probably one of the most remarkable feats of the film is that if you're an artist, you're still inspired because what he did with that film, he told it so well. It's, It's inspiring what he did. And I think that's the other uh, tale that he's telling uh, from an artist's point of view, which is, if you're going to do it, you better go all the way and you better give it everything that you've got. Um, I, I think that is another point of view that, that, that 
that that he is telling. Because honestly, uh, it did almost kill him. And and honestly, that wasn't his first film. He made a couple of films before. And anyone who's made a film, I've made a short film, and um, anyone who's made a, a, a film uh, knows that it's a war zone at best. Yes. Yeah. yeah at, at best, it is a war zone. Um, there are so many moving parts. It is just, it is chaos personified. Um, and I can't even imagine, I know the film was over budget. They brought in another studio to help finance the picture, uh, so that he could, so that he could complete it. And I think that's one of the things that he felt uh, is that if he took it on, he knew what it was going to take out of him to, to complete it. Um, and I think that's part of what he's saying is that careful what you take on, because if you're an artist, you're going to see it through to the very end and it could very well kill you if you're not careful of what you take on. And that's kind of one of the interesting, almost contradictory things about the film in and of itself is that it is about caution and being careful with the power that you have and the success that you accumulate, but also how inspiring, especially as a filmmaker, of seeing the techniques that he did makes me want to make films more. Like it's such oh my a God. weird, conflicting like mentality. Hundred percent. The the scene of the first read through of the script of the show, uh, the fictional. Oh my show, God! And the how he employed the use of sound. Uh, uh, that was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that was not, uh, if I remember correctly, that, that was not really seen a lot before in American filmmaking. Uh, but holy shit balls, like some of the, the, the techniques that he did in this film were absolutely revolutionary. And again, like he just, he pushed himself relentlessly, uh, to, to, to tell this particular story. And I think it's because he knew he only had one shot. And he had so much to say. So he wanted to tell it in the best way possible and and tell it in a way that it would stand uh, the test of time. Yeah, I feel like this movie, this movie wouldn't have been made had it not have been in 1979. Like, no it, way. It, it couldn't have been done on a budget from a movie in 76 when like Taxi nope. Driver came out. And it definitely couldn't have been done with the heavy... Um, you know, censorship and more teenage family oriented audiences of like something like 84. Exactly. And obviously he like he had a limited time to do it. He had to make it at right the time when modernist cinema was still, you know, taking over. This is an auteur film, like in and of itself. It, it couldn't it couldn't have been done. Like it, it couldn't have been like you can't have Back to the Future and all that jazz come out in the same year. Like that, no, like, it, no it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So you have to. He had to do it at the time when, like, he had so much free reign on what to say. And obviously, like you said, it went over budget. They had to take it to Fox to finish. But yeah. He. I feel like it was just so right to be this story that's extremely egotistical, very meta. And yeah. also so deeply, deeply personal that it couldn't have been made in any other time, especially with the techniques. Like again, we no see way. more films like yeah. this more today as well. With there's a lot more independent cinema out now and getting more traction. Yeah. But the technology and techniques have evolved so much that it it literally there's no other time that this could have been made than '79. Especially again, it feels like it's the end of an era because the year later, a year later, 1980, movies changed completely. They changed completely. And, yeah. 
Yeah, and it was just—it was so perfect. It's a ter- perfect time capsule movie in and of in, in and of itself. Yes, I could not agree more. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's finish it off and answer the big question. We have just like sung the praises of this movie and like you know talked about it in depth, but I want to know uh, why this movie adds to your love of film and theater. What is it that you really take away from this that just adds to your love of the mediums? Uh, it speaks to me to what it means to be an artist. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's similar to like even the show Sunday in the Park with George, you know, the, the, oh, first, yes. the first line of the show, white, a blank page or, or canvas, you know, it just presents, you know, the idea of like, possibilities and and when if you're an artist the the links that you will go to uh uh to 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 fully satisfy uh the medium in which you choose to be an artist um and to fully express that is it's a relationship between uh creative intelligence and the medium which is the artist and uh also that that pressing need that never goes away it never goes away of, of constantly wanting to, uh, to up yourself. And I know for me, that is something that I've had to work very hard to keep a healthy balance with, Mm -hmm. uh, because it is the thing that will kill you. If you, if you fall into the trap of inhaling your own horseshit, you will constantly be trying to top yourself and you will lead a life of misery. And, uh, you know, that's, it, 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 speaks also to this notion of finding the healthy balances as an artist. But what it means, if you can hit that home run, if you can do that one performance, that one project, create that one piece of art that does stand the test of time, how you've put your stamp, you know, on time itself. And I think any great artist, that's what they're striving to do. I couldn't agree more. And as an artist, it definitely you know, makes me want to, you know, definitely create that one thing or just continue to try and grow, um, even though the, the grim nature of the film. Uh, what, what I was struck by when, when I finished it, uh, my first viewing, I was, it, it is honestly the reason and the perfect answer to the question that we are trying to answer with this series as to how theater and film can work together. I mean, this is literally theater on stage and I've said it before I've had so yeah. many professors in like film school and people tell me that you don't want because I'm a sucker for just so much dialogue I love it but like you know people say you don't want too much dialogue on on screen we're not doing theater which I just think is horseshit and this I is just too. a great example of uh, how the two mediums can work together and uh, the dancing sequences and just the way that the camera moves everything is so theatrical uh, but also the filmmaking of, you know, the parallelism between the conversations he has with death and the, you know, skipping ahead to when he's in the hospital. There's so much creativity um, on screen and showing. And I love, I just love a good personal movie. But this movie, like I said earlier, just paved the way and inspired so many other movies of the of its kind in terms of the, yeah. uh, the artist and of theater. Like I've said for so many years that Birdman was my favorite movie of the 2010s because of what that film did and spoke to about, you know, literal theater yeah. on screen. And it's just a perfect example of that. And yeah. even though it's so just, and I and also it's, it's such a balancing movie, like how it handles so many conflicting themes and tones but does does them so well to make them coherent like it's it's so entertaining but also 
deeply disturbing, you know, what he goes through. And it makes it, you know, very enjoyable to watch, which is such a very, you know, grim thing to say, but it's true. And I, I love stories like this. And I, I, I want people to, you know, strive and be encouraged by movies like this. Um, to to continue to create, but also understand that it is going to be difficult. But if you are willing to accept the risks and be healthy about it, then it, anything like that is worth making. I could not agree more. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Do you uh, do you have anything else to add before we uh, sign off? Uh, yeah, go watch the film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, it's been such a joy chatting about it it's one of my favorite films of all time and um, yeah I just think it's it's remarkable thank you so much Mark yeah thank you thank you and thank you for doing this series it's such a great series I've said many times on this show that my two biggest passions in life are film and musical theater Without early exposures to films like Grease, Little Shop of Horrors, and The Producers, I may not have started on the path to becoming a filmmaker. This new series was intended to highlight the wonder of storytelling through song and dance within one of cinema's biggest genres, and to examine the great divide that exists between the two mediums and their followings. It's no surprise that some of the most polarizing films to date are film adaptations of Broadway musicals. It's been said they're unnecessary, that they rob audiences of a true theater experience by filling them with big-name actors who don't possess the level of vocal talent needed to convey the same message. I certainly can't denounce critics for thinking this way. You could pull up 10 examples that proves them right. However, there are times when artists use films to their advantage and bring movie magic to a theatrical story. Norman Jewison perfectly captures inner conflict of characters in Fiddler on the Roof. Staging and camera movements during West Side Story's dance numbers introduce power dynamics and hierarchical positions between the two gangs. Chicago's use of cinematic parallelism captures the necessary three-act structure and the style of the original vaudeville showcase. And the stardom of Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta in Greece is enough to inspire generations. It's moments like these and countless others from our chosen films that capture the power of theater. It makes an experience that feels holistic and special to every individual viewer. Thank you so much to all our special guests from this series and, of course, my producer, Sullivan Harris. You really made this entire experience worthwhile and one I'll never forget. Frankly, I Love Movies is part of the Orion Valley Productions podcast network where you can listen to Ravnica Avengers, our very own Real Play D&D podcast, and our new Attack on Titan recap podcast entitled Tea Time with Titans, which drops its first episode next Wednesday, September 30th. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can check us out on Facebook at Frankly I Love Movies, on Twitter at Frankly Podcast, and you can follow me on Instagram at JoshFailJosh21 for all the new and exciting updates in my life. You won't have to wait long for our next episode because next week, Matt Simmons and Alyssa Micha are back on the show together to count down our picks for our 10 favorite movies of the 2000s decade. And we'll reveal what our next miniseries is all about. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Music